Thank you for tuning into Tactile, a practical guide to transforming art and culture. This is the podcast of Leveraging a Network for Equity, LANE, a program of the National Performance Network. LANE supports arts organizations of color and rural organizations with the time and resources needed to grow their infrastructure in ways that are culturally authentic and moves the field towards justice. I'm your host, Sage Crump, Program Specialist for LANE. Welcome to season two of Tactile. This is the first episode in our second season. If you haven't checked out the first episodes from our inaugural season, feel free to do so. There's some great, great content there where we learn from the Lane cohort members and other people in the world who are thinking about the way art and culture impacts change and what kind of values we want to hold inside it. This first episode of the second season We're picking up the thread on our cornerstones. These are the guiding principles of Lane Leveraging a Network for Equity. And while they may not be specific to art and culture as a whole, as a field, they inform all types of ways people are organizing for change inside their communities. This episode in particular is going to focus on the cornerstone popular education. We have with us today one of my favorite people uh, to talk to about pretty much anything. But in this case, it's popular education, Marcus Rhyme. Hi, Marcus. How are you today? I am so blessed and so grateful that I can hardly stand it. How are you? I'm doing really well. I am I'm excited for this conversation um, in, in a way that feels very uh, grounded. I'm excited for folks who haven't heard or aren't familiar with popular education to understand the way it can inform their work. Um, You and I have met in so many different ways and have so many different intersections in our lives. I'm going to just ask you to share with folks what you feel like you want them to know about you uh, and do a quick introduction for yourself. Sure, well, thank you, Sage. I'm really grateful to be here. Um, talking about popular education and specifically tied to leveraging a network for equity and um, all that it is meant for us. But people will sometimes confuse who I am because of the way that I show up in spaces. So as you said, my name is Marques Ryan and my pronouns are they and them. Uh, Despite how I may perform in the world, uh, that is how I see myself. And I am a soul that was born on the banks of the mighty, muddy Mississippi River. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and I am an artist, and I am a creator, first and foremost. And so if one understands that much about me, then everything else will kind of make better sense of how I show up in this space, even though I tend to show up as a popular educator. We'll unpack what that means shortly or if I show up as an organizer um, another day, or I may show up as a consultant around organizational development. But I believe you and I ran into one another around 2004 or 2005, I can't remember which. It's a long time ago. And it was through alternate routes. And I was a uh, board member on the executive committee uh, for a number of years during that time. And um, Yeah, so I just show up in different spaces where art intersects with social change and economic justice. And my goal is to be of service to this body, to this community, and to be accountable to those who are putting their lives on the line every day to create more just and equitable societies writ large. Thank you so much. And I know that to be true of you in so many ways. in addition to the, the years we've known each other through Alternate Roots, Carpetbag Theater, um, I just want to shout out that you have also graciously for the last two years been one of the consultants for Leveraging a Network for Equity. Uh, and yes. in, in so many ways, we get to have such a reciprocal relationship. 
um, and and learn from each other. And the work that you've done with the Coleman Center uh, in New York, Alabama, I want to shout them out as as a, a um, one of our cohort members and um, folks who have had a chance to really sit and learn from and with you. Um, so uh, there's a first question that we ask at the beginning of every tactile episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we ask folks, how do you believe change happens? <laughs> I know, it's yes. just a softball, right? Just a little something to warm up. I knew this question was coming and I knew that I would not have the answer for it because it's so um, spontaneous in some ways and so iterative in other ways. And our goal oftentimes as cultural strategists, cultural organizers, as social practice artists um, in particular is to facilitate or to make easy the process by which change can happen. We help to set the conditions. We help people to reflect on the power and the agency that they were already born with, to remember, to recall, to reflect on those things and to draw from that um, their own power and their leadership and vision forward a reality that's different from what they're experiencing and what their forebears um, had to pass on to them. Um, So another way that I would say that change happens is um, very slowly um, and sometimes very quickly. The slowly, it it always is, right? Um, I remember listening to the podcast you did with Adrienne Marie Brown, and um, you all were talking about the pace of it uh, and the fact that, that it is always happening around us. But then there are those moments where we have disruptive change. These moments where change happens so very spontaneously. And many of us as individuals, as families, as communities, as nations, as a planet are left in the wake of that and having to navigate it. So change happens in a lot of different ways, but our goal uh, in some ways is to help manage, if not the thing of change, then uh, how we will react to that which is always in flux and turning over. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I think it asks us to hold um, our relationship to the present and the and what the present can offer us, while also keeping a long view of the world. I think that is the gift of cultural workers to movement work, is that it feels like we are supporting folks in the moment as they are are experiencing um, either harm or just change. In- in general, and also we're able to say, you know, 20 years from now, here's mm-hmm. something that, or 20 years ago, here's something that people held on to. Maybe we should pick that back up again, you know, and then 20 years from now, what are we offering that people can pick up for where they are? So I really, this pace, timing, and change offering that you just gave us feels really resonant to me. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you. And I, I just want to reflect back um, some another aha that you reminded me of in just that moment. And it is the value. Sometimes when we, when we think about change, we think about what we want to happen in the future, but we don't oftentimes flip that paradigm on its head and recall all that which has happened before. It's kind of like the Sankofa, the um, mythological um, uh, bird, from the Akan tradition in, in uh, West Africa that helps us to bring the past and to bring those lessons into the now and even project and see that we are the future. We are living in the future from that perspective. And therefore to imagine a future is not far-fetched. In fact, we are both in the future, we are the future, we are the past, we are dealing with the past. All of these kinds of convergences and divergences, I think, if we don't get too, too caught up in the, the meta of it all, it cracks open possibilities for mm-hmm. what can happen. It says that it doesn't have to be this way and it hasn't always been this way. So thank you for that reminder. Mm-hmm. No, that's beautiful. Which leads me to the um, to our next, to our, our overarching topic for mm-hmm. this conversation, uh, which is popular education. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, as uh, in your intro, you described yourself as a popular educator. Can you talk a little bit about what that means about how you interact with folks and the work that you do? Indeed. Um, so another way of kind of understanding how I enter into the world and therefore my lens and my relationship to popular education as a, a conceptual model and a framework is that I am largely an autodidact, which is to say um, a self-learner, self-taught kind of person. And that's not to say that I haven't had formal education, which of course you can probably tell that I have, but that kind of mining for ourselves, not just as individuals, but now in the aggregate, that we already have bodies of knowledge that we have collected over time and that we have experienced. And it is out of the marrow of our experiences that we can be the experts of our own situation and and imagine forward a way that is more sustainable, uh, more adaptable, more healing, more just, more equitable. So in my estimation, in terms of popular education, it is a um, it is often put in opposition to or in conversation with formal styles of education, uh, which is to say a banking education where there is a teacher um, who has a body of knowledge and expertise that then they impart to students. Well, if we flip that paradigm and think about ourselves, not kind of in that relational uh, kind of power dynamic where the teacher is outside of and projecting within these empty vessels, in lieu of that, we are in a kind of dialectical experience with one another. We remain in dialogue with one another and we see one another as co-learners. So my role is to have a strong point of view because no one is neutral. And my point of view Uh, just to unpack that is around justice and equity and healing and righteousness and love and justice and peace. We could go on about all the beautiful things that I am for and I stand grounded in those things. But my role is to facilitate or to make easy the discovery of those things for others, right? So as a popular educator, I remind them that their lives are the texts from which they will read and project um, some kind of scaffolding to design, um, um, whether it's a policy or or a new way of being in the world. So popular education is just really where everyone is a teacher, everyone is a learner, and we are all um, learning together to co-create a new world, a new vision. Thank you for that. That was such a beautiful uh, exposition on, on popular education, and I love the way you placed it in conversation with sort of formal learning, because it, it, for, we understand, particularly in Western culture, that formal learning is white Western culture, right? Like this formal learning, book learning, you know, it's not, doesn't mean anything unless it's written down, um, and written down by someone with some letters after their name, um, and the way you're describing um, popular education, it sounds like a way for us to understand what we all can bring through mm-hmm. our lived experience. And that doesn't remove folks with formal training. That's fine, you know, if that's your lived experience. But that doesn't place you in a hierarchy um, of being more important than someone mm-hmm. else's lived experience. Is that, am I on the right train? You are so on the right train. You are in the conductor's seat and you are helping us get down the track in record time. It is really about power, the performance of power, right? Mm-hmm. How will we be in relationship with one another? And if we're in the enterprise of creating more just, more equitable worlds, societies, communities, even if we take it to um, the, the relationship within our families or with our friends. This kind of idea of having power over is antithetical to being in right relationship with one another. Now, mind you, there are going to be spaces and places where that is necessary, right? I certainly do not want to be the one on an airplane during some kind of challenge guiding people because goodness knows <laughs> it would be a situation and 
that's why people get so such great training and that's why i pay attention every time i get on a plane it's because there are people with those bodies of knowledge who know what to do in these specific moments uh to to make sure that we all live that we survive but outside of those hierarchies that are absolutely needed when we're trying to be in right relationship with one another i don't think that those sorts of power dynamics are serving us certainly um, white supremacy, the mythology thereof, right, is a myth mm -hmm. that um, um, uh, patriarchy, that somehow being um, identified as male upon birth uh, 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 makes you somehow more important than any other human souls. Uh, uh, having, uh, being a person of means, all of these ways of creating hierarchies are then demonstrated in a kind of classroom setting or in even an organizing setting. And so I love this experience that I have, whether as a um, facilitator or as a participant in um, a popular education experience. And the first time I ever came across that was at the Highlander Research and Education Center. And I say that, I mean, when it is, when it was intentional, that we were intentionally engaged in the breaking down of hierarchies and we we're talking about co-creating with with equity and being in right relationship with one another and therefore the power dynamics between the facilitator and the participant were flattened now there are different responsibilities definitely you know kind of holding the space mm -hmm. um, or participating in the space but those hierarchies are flattened and um, we know what our roles are and my role as a participant in, in in one of those spaces is to lean forward more again to to use my life as the text as it were and not look to some expert outside of myself um, and to even see those who are in relationship with me beside me to see them also as knowledgeable and having bodies of expertise that we can mine for um, for our healing, for our sads, um, to to just get right, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I sometimes hear it the the phrase like "you have the solution." Like people already have the solution to their to whatever it is their challenge their issue their question um and that part of what a framework around popular education is it helps folks get to that um and and find that for them understand that for themselves right and i i, I, I offer that because my next question to you is uh because we are living breathing uh in in inculcated with with a culture that says that hierarchies are natural necessary <laughs> um this is the way to best practice all these phrases that um concretize uh white supremacy as, as a as a natural practice um how do you as a popular educator show up in ways for yourself that demonstrate what popular education can look like the embodiment of it and what does that mean around the people that you wind up working with? And how, um, especially if you're walking into a space as someone who would be considered uh, more important, you know, that people will look to you like as, as a consultant or facilitator, like these words, even in their own practice, like they will try and, and create the hierarchy because of that is most comfortable, right? That is what we are. Oh used to like so what are some ways that you have found to show up in a way that helps people move through the hierarchy in order to practice popular education with them sure you you're asking uh, all the good questions uh so one of the ways that i um do my work is to do my work before i ever come into the room and what i mean by that is understanding the bodies of uh, power that reside within my vessel. And these are things that I just walk into with, with rel relative privilege. Um, and first reconciling that that was un 
unmerited and that it is unjust and that it is violent and that it keeps not only those who are um, oppressed by those kinds of violent hierarchies, but it also prevents me as well from being human. And so there's this kind of breakdown that happens. And my goal is to restore that humanity and that dignity to first get my heart space, my mind space, my body space right before I ever walk into a room. So that's the first thing that I do. And it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm altogether righteous and always loving and always have a smile on my face. Um, that is my aspiration. But what I am is in the active process of doing that work before I ever show up and being in community with enough people who will tell me with love to my face when I fall short of even the aspirational goals that I espouse. And they will call me in to um, a deeper relationship and to healing so that I can then do the work that we set out to do. So that's, that's the preamble, right? Mm-hmm. But when we get into the space with one another, um, oftentimes the ways that I hold space are by following the popular education spiral. So if others may not know that, it's a, it's a pretty easy Google. You'll get the images and they will all look very similar. It's just a spiral that just goes around and it starts. The first step of it is starting with the participants' experiences. And one of the ways that I've been doing that for the last 15 or some odd years is through the story circle methodology uh, or the story circle process that I learned through Carpetbag Theater by way of Junebug Productions, John O'Neill, by way of Free Southern Theater and all of those who were there helping to form and inform this process. And so that inheritance then allows me to immediately shift the dynamic just by getting people to tell stories. And it is by thinking through with them oftentimes, what is the right body of stories for us to kind of draw from? What are, what are the prompts that we need in order to just get the, the, the subject in the room, right? Uh, that subject could be uh, uh, service workers uh, who work in the schools in New Orleans, right? And I'm not an expert on that experience. I am not whatsoever. So um, I can tell maybe an adjacent story um, just out of respect and honor um, and, and vulnerability. But we allow those people who have experienced these things to share And it is by them going one after the other, they begin to understand the value and the richness of their experience. So that's one of the ways that I perform this. That's a very specific um, uh, process, technique, and way of being um, Mm -hmm. that we start with the stories of the participants and then ask of them, where are the patterns that you, what are the patterns that you see? What are the gaps that you see? What other information do we need to add? Because we may need to bring in specialized knowledge. That may be the moment at which we need to get, um, say, a policy person to come in and read um, what has been written in the last contract, right? It may be that we need to bring in some other types of expertise to help move this process forward. But my goal is to get them to say it. Even if I may know what that is, it's not really useful for me to articulate that because then I own the process rather than the community that is most directly affected owning that process for themselves. And also, the last thing I'll say just in this bit is to work myself out of a job every single time. And what I mean by that, it sounds cute, in some circles and it sounds uh, curious in others. What I mean is turning over and being transparent about what it is that I'm doing so that there's someone or several someones in their community who can do that same work that I've been doing. And they can hold that and build the knowledge, the expertise in in their own communities. Um, So that's 
that's largely the way that I show up initially. Um, there are a whole set of other practices that I go through, um, ritual practices, um, uh, cultural organizing um, frameworks that inform how I am in the space. But I just really think you got to do your work before, you have to do it during, and you have to have a plan for after. No, thank you for that. Um, I love the beginning of that spiral and what it means to understand the ways that your individual person impacts how you show up or how others will relate to you before you even get in the room. So you have a way to um, navigate and, and support a body moving through an experience that will, will want to center you. It, it will, it, and we'll try to. One of the things I feel like sometimes I'm asking you questions that I might know a little bit about the answer to, but I'm still enjoying uh, your your uh, conversation so deeply. Um, so this one may seem like a softball, but I think uh, uh, it's a it's a good one. And mm-hmm. I want to to hear you talk about. Um, the relationship between popular education, equity, and justice. Like, why is popular education a valuable modality or lens if you are talking about justice and equity, right? Like, what does is, what is popular education bring to that conversation that isn't there without it? It's, it is so simple in some ways that it can be confounding. The performance of and the, the ritual of the embodiment of the processes, the techniques and the tools of popular education are about in many ways negotiating power and ensuring that communities in particular that have been historically disenfranchised uh, and individuals within those communities who have been um, intentionally marginalized even further are put in a different relationship with one another, right? And so it is that we are practicing the the very thing that we want to see in the world. We are performing it in the now, even as imperfect as it may be. So justice or being um, making sure that we have uh, fair ways of being and of doing uh, and access for all people. We are performing that in the process of popular education. And with regards to equity, it's not every, not, it's not going to be one size fit all, fits all for everyone, right? So what may be fair for one person might not be as fair or needed for another human soul. Mm-hmm. And so what we have to do is really start interrogating, as I was saying before, it's not just important for me to do my internal work, oh, I'm so wonderful, before I walk into a space, right? Now that I go into the space understanding this privilege, that might mean I need to be quiet for an extended period of time so that softer voices, quieter voices, marginalized voices, oppressed voices can have the space to speak. It may mean that the traditional roles that have been relegated to um, others in terms of service, that I then take on the mantle of serving so that they can be in the center of this discussion. And so popular education, um, this process, this way of being, allows us to to practice what we want to uh, perform and to use this as the laboratory for what is possible within the wider world. So that's those are the ways that I see it tied to justice and equity. I use those words, but it's something entirely different when you when you experience it. Mm. It's entirely different. I was just thinking about earlier about this uh, project I worked on at the University of Chicago with a group of young people, adolescents, uh, teenagers from the south and west sides of Chicago, and how for the first few days they were looking at me like, uh, aren't you going to give us the answer? And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> I'm not giving you the answer, but what I will do is show you how I would go about finding the answers for myself, right? And so um, the team and I would help them go into the archives and we would help them um, really unpack these heady concepts 
that they would then define for themselves so that then they could own those, um, those concepts, they could own that language, they could own the process, and they would need us less and less and less. And that is the goal, right? Um, so it, it, some people might say teaching someone to fish uh, rather than giving them the fish. I'm like, sometimes you just need to give them the fish. Do both of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I'm hungry. Feed them and also show them how to fish. We can do both. This is not binary, right? Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and listening to you, um, it sounds like you are walking in the door with a level of trust and respect without ever having met the room you might be engaged in, right? And I'm thinking for folks who are, are, are listening to this, like there, I want to name that there, there feels like listening to you, like a core value around you. I think you said it earlier around like inherent value of humanity and like how, um, where did you find that? How do you keep it? <laughs> In times when sometimes you look around at humanity and you're going, I'm not sure I even want to be a part of this species. Like, how do you hold that? Um, and because I think there is a way that um, the what you're describing centers not only your own humanity, which is what you referenced before, but a certain dignity and trust and respect for people. Period. You know, it's... um. It's that part of me that I um, actively struggle to be fully present at all times. Now, if you know me, you think, oh, you're not struggling. No, actually, I am deeply struggling to, to be vulnerable always, mm-hmm. to show the soft belly always, to open my heart always to live with love always. And the world has taught me that those um, ways of being and embodying are risky and um, dangerous and and sometimes unwelcome, right? Mm. So I have to engage in an active resistance against that. I'm not saying that other people should, but I'm offering that this is a way to counteract the kind of um, hegemonic violence that we are always perpetually invited into. Be hard, um, shut off, shut down, you know, from the head, never the heart, those sorts of things. But it is that that I think continues to bring me in right relationship. But I have to go back to home, actually from Memphis, Tennessee, right? Um, In places where people don't always speak with subject verb agreement, but they have more knowledge in their pinky finger than many of the people that I've worked with in institutions of higher learning, in their pinky finger. Mm -hmm. Um, The means by which some of the most vulnerable have been able to survive and to thrive in a system that has been hell-bent on our complete and utter annihilation suggests to me that there is a beauty, a wisdom, and a dignity somewhere in there. And my goal is to be present and attentive to that, right? So by it's just by extension. It is a grace that is extended because even though I've not met this community, this group, this human soul, this one individual human soul, I hold space that they too have experienced some levels of oppression that they may not have yet been heard today. And that is one of the things that I lead with. Um, and, and, you know, and part of the reason why sometimes, even though I have a lot to say, I don't say much. It's because, you know, other people have things that they need to get off of their chest. And so how do I hold that space for their humanity, for their dignity to show up? Um, so that's one, that's one of the ways. Um, I also think that it's the world that I want to live in. I want to co-create spaces 
where love is the way that we lead and where healing is the order of the day. And when we get into some of these campaigns for justice and for equity, particularly once you get into the higher stratosphere of those things, and what I'm talking about is on the national level, on the state level, on the international level, on the multinational level, um, the more rarefied the air, it seems the more that we forget our humanity and our dignity. And so my goal, goal has always been to bring both. I can bring my head, that's gonna always be there, but I want to bring the heart. And what I have found is that most people, when they lean into it, um, find it to be a, a space of, of benefit. So that's how it is that I, that I come to it. But I don't think that I'm special. I learned that from grandmas. <laughs> yes. Like Black women taught me this first and foremost. And so I lean into that space um, of, of, of Black womanhood and honoring that and say, how can I be more like this? Right. That is the that's the example for me, the kind of matriarchal uh, uh, energy that I want to embody in this in this lifetime. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for sharing um, your experiences like that. And I and I appreciate your your grace and your generosity, because you said uh, like this may not be the way for everyone, but I feel like. I would like to say, if you are intentionally wanting to practice popular education, vulnerability and humility is something you have to practice, right? Like, I don't know how you do popular education uh, um, as, <laughs> as in, in with folks without being, without being vulnerable yourself, right? Um, yes. And without, without being honest or transparent or um, uh, um, huge, certainly humble. Um, and if those are places that, or words that, if you are listening to this podcast that make you feel uncomfortable before you think about jumping into a pedagogy or a practice of popular education, that, that is a space of work. Um, mm -hmm. and I, and, and I, I love that you named it as work. You know, that phrase, um, it's hard to make it look this easy. You know, like when you said people look at you and you're like, is this hard? It's hard to make it look this easy, right? Even in, uh, I joke all the time that leveraging a network for equity in my imagination six mm -hmm. years ago mm -hmm. doesn't look completely like what it, what it is right now. Mm -hmm. And that's because popular education was one of our cornerstones. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we, we had to let it evolve in relationship to the cohort members, to the consultants, to, mm -hmm. the, to the context, even the conjuncture in which we were doing this work created great shifts in what we thought our outcomes were going to be. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the, they're not, like you said, there's no binary. There wasn't like, oh, this way and it failed. It's like, oh, all this other learning has happened that mm -hmm. we can harvest, right? And I think, um, mm -hmm popular education reminds us to, to come for the harvest. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeed. It's, um, it's captured in the conversation between Miles Horton and Paolo Freire, uh, two uh, of the exemplars um, that are often lifted up around popular education. The former, um, one of the founders of the Highlander Folk School, later the Highlander Research and Education Center, and uh, the latter, um, from South America with the pedagogy of the oppressed. And they were having a conversation at the Highlander Center. It's captured in this book called We Make the Road by Walking. Um, and Miles Horton says it, I believe it's in like chapter four, Miles talks about that there are at least five to six good ways of moving forward and five to six bad ways of moving forward. And as long as they're not the bad ways to move forward, he actually doesn't care which pathway mm. that, that the community takes. That, that, that kind of choice, that um, um, agency that, that that community has 
is really his work is to steward that, to facilitate, to, to be present for them making those choices for themselves, right? Um, and so, like, what are the multiplicity of ways that people can, um, can, can create those kinds? And how can we just be attendant to it rather than um, trying to always control and manipulate and constrain? Because, frankly, sometimes I don't even know, <laughs> you know, what I should be wearing today. And I, can't, I can barely tell you what I had for dinner last night, much less to be able to say what another human soul, what another community, what another um, unit of human souls should be doing at any given time. But again, that popular education um, kind of praxis, uh, not just a, a way of being, but the way of, um, uh, of doing just reminds me to be humble in that way, to show up and just acknowledge that I don't have all the answers um, but I will be responsive and accountable and I will be attendant and I will hold space and um, I will bear witness and I will have a point of view. And that point of view will always come back for me. The bench line is around justice and equity and healing and transformation. That's what it all comes back to for me. Yeah, so, it, the, and, and Miles also goes on to talk about that like, um, uh, he and, and Paolo talk about love as one of the primary motivating factors for why one would even engage in such a radical uh, educational process. And, you know, I didn't say it, they said it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're bringing it back up, bringing it into our, our context. Um, and I swear, it's almost <laughs> like you read my mind because uh, you went down the road that I'm just going to, I'm going to ask the question, but it feels like you just went down this road. Um, and so I'm just sort of uh, underlining it. But when you quoted Miles Horton and the different uh, roads that a community could take and that it didn't matter which one, it felt like what is important, the road itself isn't important, but what is important, it seems, are the values that yes. guide the decisions that are being made. Sometimes it feels, sometimes values are things that, that folks, you know, uh, either I find particularly in organizational development, folks have a vision and a mission. And maybe in the last 10 years or so, folks are coming back to having value statements um, <laughs> that are, are really important. I know it used to be my drum for a minute. Like, do we have, are you clear on the values? Um, <laughs> As a popular educator, um, working with the community, it, it, I would imagine that part of the, the work is also understanding the values of the folks who are working with and holding your own. I want to I wanna really mm. highlight that. Like, there's something about this that isn't just around a service. Like, it's not like you are, you're a tool. Because that, that mm -hmm. takes away your humanity in the space as well, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about that a little bit more? Sure. Ooh. Um, that's, that's not the softball. Um, that's, that's, that's the juicy one. So I mentioned in, in passing um, the cultural organizing um, kind of concept. And... Uh, for those who don't know, that is the ways that I understand it, the ways that I am informed by it, um, are informed largely by um, one of my best friends, Tafar Wala Muhammad, and the ways that she conceives of it. And that is art and culture, which is, you know, part, part and parcel of why we are even talking about lanes, art and culture organizations, right? So art and culture. And then we have policy and practice. And then beneath all of that, we have healing and transformation. Um, and so as I use that rubric and enter into a community, the first thing that I do is engage in deep listening, understanding that there is already work that has likely taken place before I ever showed up. So I take an assessment, I listen, 
and I don't listen from kind of like a um, like a, a clinical or a, with a scientific distance or research distance. I'm in it with them and in conversation, but I'm also listening more than I'm speaking. And I engage in sweat equity. And that's before I begin any kind of work of any substance. And, and that can be really frustrating for people who say, oh, just give us the answer. Just tell us what to do. And it, it would be irresponsible. It would be malpractice of me to come in and run roughshod over the humanity and dignity of this community. Uh, it would be disrespectful of me when I know better, when I know that you probably have the answers in this community for me to just, just roll bump over that. And so it's not just a practice. There are values, to your point, values that undergird the very means by which I show up. But those values that I espouse, that I hold, that I practice are going to meet the values of that community. So it goes back to this deep listening uh, kind of positionality. So this deep listening allows me to hear and to bear witness to how their values show up in the world. Sometimes we don't necessarily have a value statement, but we are performing our value statement. And I, after that point of, of transitioning, before we go into the, the, the more depthful work, I want to reflect back to them what I think that I'm hearing. It's for a fidelity check, right? Mm, mm -hmm. This is what I've witnessed. Is this what you intend? And it gives us an opportunity to now look and see, am I showing up in a way that is different? Am I listening improperly? Is, are there some incongruities here? Are there some inconsistencies in the ways that we espouse, the way that we perform, and what we want to see happen later down the road? So again, it's not like, um, let's say if we're going to change some, again, some policy or some practice, that's not for the sweet by and by. It's not for 12 months, 18 months down the road. We are doing that seed work now. And inside that the seed are the values. And the values are not something esoteric outside of us. It is how we do the what. It's the how of the what. Yeah, that, that's a mic drop. The how of the what. Uh, I think that gives a lot, people a lot to, to think about. Around what they need to hold as they engage groups of folks. Um, in thinking, and this is anyone from a, a, a consultant and a cohort. It is a, a program officer and grantees. If it is an ED in their staff, if it is an artist and the audience, you know, like mm. what is the uh, what is the the relationship and the values, and how do they meet each other? Um, because circling back to where you got us started in the beginning around transformation and its connection to relationship mm -hmm. um, that they have, that they go hand in hand. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you. It's been a rich conversation for me and this is going to inform how I show up differently. Um, even, as early as tomorrow. And so I'm very grateful. Is there anything I haven't asked that you're like, um, I came to this conversation and I wanted to be sure I shared dot, dot, dot. Well, I would say um, this is an opportunity to just lift up the people whom I know. Um, it, there are some people who I believe are exemplars of popular education and the way that it shows up in the world. I would highly encourage people to avail themselves uh, to the Highlander Research and Education Center. I don't work there. I don't get kickbacks. It's just the place where I was politicized. Um, it is a space of reflection and it has a deep and storied history around labor rights around civil rights, around environmental justice and migration 
and economics and the next economy. All of these things are situated there. Um, and if you have any opportunity ever to be able to sit with um, or attend a workshop or just have a meal with Tafara, Waller, Muhammad, I would highly encourage it because I would say that um, not only has she been a sister and a friend, but she has been one of the living um, kind of tomes and texts. And what I mean by that is that the, she embodies the practice. And so if I were to do anything, I would point to um, institutions and people who are going to make some of these ideas come to life. Uh, that would, that, would, that would be where I said it. And if you are interested in seeing more about what this looks like in modern times, there's a whole bunch of things you can find on the internet, but I would encourage you to, um, again, go to the Highlander Center and look up the Sylvia Horton Cultural Organizing Project, because there are a host of materials there that help you unpack um, a cultural organizing process, but the scaffolding, if you look at the skeleton of it, it is popular education all day, every day, through and through. Thank you for that. I uh, I have said publicly before, I think I wrote on Facebook and I've said to, to Tafar that when they write the history of this time of change in the world, her name will be lifted up like we lift up Ella Baker now. You know, I just feel like she has that. She has touched so many of us in that way. Um, yes. Thank you so thank much you for your so time. Um, this is a great conversation. Now, I, 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 I often feel like I'm cutting these a little short because I feel like I could stay and talk to you for a few hours, but there's so much in here that I don't want folks to lose. I want them to get mm -hmm. that concentrated dose. Um, yes. uh, uh, thank you so much. For the years that you have participated with Lane, it has been a joy to work with you and continue to be in, in community and conversation with you. You bring so much to everything you do, um, specifically to as we think about this intersection of art, culture, spirit, justice. I consider you one of the people I talk about. I keep you in my mouth. And so I really appreciate you. And uh, thank you for taking this time. Thank you for holding the space and thank you for your love. Thank you for listening. Funding support for Lane is provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. You can find more information about Lane and the amazing organizations involved on the NPN website, www.npnweb.org. This episode was co-edited by Amanda Bankston and Monica Tyran. Jazz Franklin is our podcast editor and sound design by Muti Reed.